Amen. Well, I am blessed. Are you blessed? God is a good God. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. We're going to look at another of these scriptures that I've been speaking about each night. A scripture which had a partial fulfillment in the beginning of the church age and then had its full fulfillment or is having its full fulfillment right now. And that's why I'm so excited. So there was a local Jewish fulfillment at the beginning of the church age but if you go back to the original prophecy in the Old Testament you will find that it has a a world dimension concerning all nations which wasn't there in that first fulfillment but is there now in that second fulfillment. So Acts chapter 15 and verse 12. The scene is the council of Jerusalem. The disciples or the, have come together and, and uh, Paul has come up to Jerusalem over an issue. The issue is that all of a sudden thousands of Gentiles are being saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and God's gospel is now breaking fresh ground and the, the uh, Pharisees and other Jewish groups say well to be real Christians they have to be circumcised and they've got to keep the law of Moses. What God is now doing in the new way of Jesus is simply to if you like, to fill out and expand and complete what we already had under our Jewish religion. It's just a kind of a, uh, an extra bit of zip to the old way. And Paul, seeing the danger of this, fiercely resisted any such idea that these lovely new Gentiles who were just simply abandoned to Jesus and enjoying this life in God and filled and thrilled with the Holy Spirit who had no religious trappings on them at all that he was very concerned that they shouldn't now be brought under the, the bondage of these religious trappings and so the Council of Jerusalem came together to settle this issue and you hear, as you read through, you hear how the Pharisees said their part and said yes they must keep the law of Moses and then some said this and some said the other Peter testified what happened in the house of Cornelius when he got the shock of his life when halfway through his sermon the Holy Ghost fell on all these Gentiles and uh, I hope it happens tonight <laughs> I, I, anything could happen with God, amen? and then when all the debate was finished James sits there in the seat of judgment and he has to bring a judgment and while he's running, God, what do I say in this situation? What's your wisdom? Then the Holy Spirit drops this scripture into his heart. So let's read from verse 12 of Acts chapter 15. And all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles, wonders, God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. 
just as it is written, after this I will return and we will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now I want you to turn with me straight away to the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, chapter 9. And I'm going to read from verse 11. You'll see that he's quoting from the book of Amos. This was the scripture that the Holy Spirit dropped into the heart of James in this particular situation. And the question that I want to answer tonight is, why was it that scripture? What did it mean then? And what does it mean now? And I trust that by the time we've answered those questions, you won't be able to stay in your seat because I feel tonight we should finish this meeting with a ball. I'm going to try and preach as short as I can, but that will be a, a miracle. <laughs> because I want us to have a ball. I feel that we should enter into the spirit of the word that God's going to share with us tonight. Okay? So I, Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. Here's where the scripture comes from. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages, or wall up its breaches, I will raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. So once again, can you see here, the thrust of this is a total restoration of how it once was. Can you see that? So once again, we're talking about restoration. And once again, we see that, that in the restoration of all things, there immediately becomes an evangelistic consequence. The effect of this restoration is not just simply for us to have nicer meetings, but a power is let loose which causes the world to be impacted by the mightiest evangelistic thrust that the world's ever seen. And thousands and thousands pour in. Look at this. You, let's read on. Uh, Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. In other words, there's going to be so many harvests that before you finish reaping one harvest, the next harvest is already being planted. There's going to be just continual harvest, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. You get the first 3,000 saved, and before you've taken them through the commitment class, there's another 3,000 waiting to be saved. Hallelujah! You baptise a thousand on Sunday, and by Tuesday, you've got to baptise another thousand. You get, you get them, and that's what it's going to be like. That's the picture here. There's such, a, such an activity of harvest that before you've reaped one harvest, the next one's being sown. And before you've sown that one, another one's being reaped. Hallelujah. It's going to be absolutely chaotic, but gloriously chaotic. I'm longing for those days. Aren't you? Oh, hallelujah. Now, when the tabernacle of David is raised up, that will be the consequence of it being raised up. So it's important for us to know what it means. Amen. So to understand this, I want us to go back now and trace 
the way that the David's tabernacle was raised up for the first time so we'll understand what it meant in the day of James and then we will see clearly what it's going to mean and does mean as far as our day is concerned because this message I suppose is being gradually developed for probably a couple of decades and, and, and phases of the tabernacle of David were being raised up probably as much as 20 years ago but as it goes on I personally and others are getting greater and greater clarity about what God is aiming, what God's aiming at in all this. Alright, so let's go back and we'll begin in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll just trace it through the scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the situation we have here is that the, ch the children of God are battling against the Philistines and they're under pressure and the Philistines are in battle array and they really are feeling the pressure and so what they decide to do is they decide that they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them verse 3 and when the people had come into the camp the elders of Israel said why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us that when it comes among us it may save us from the hand of our enemies so what they were looking for was a superstitious presence of God. Now the Ark of the Covenant represented, of course, the fact that our God is a God of covenant. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. When God commits himself to something, he has no intention of ever changing his mind. And he's decided that Jesus is his man. He's already set his king on his holy hill and he's already decided that the whole of creation is going to be taken out of the hands of the devil and given to the, to the uh, nation which Jesus is head off to rule over forever. Now that's a covenant. He made the covenant with Abraham, we've looked at it several times already, which of course is the heart and centre of this whole great covenant. Wonderful promises in that covenant. Amen? And our God of covenant is going to keep his covenant. The ark also represents the glory in the presence of God. It's called the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth and it speaks out the, the, the dimension of his power and of his glory. He's not a little local tribal God, he's the God of all creation and of all the universes. And in the symbolism of that first covenant of law with, with Moses, he allowed that covenant to represent his real presence and the Shekinah glory was there and the ark as you know was kept in the Holy of Holies in the third compartment of the tabernacle of Moses and only the high priest went in once a year and that not without the offering of sacrifices he had to go through a great ceremony it was on the day of atonement and in the uh, traditions of the Jews where we read there that they used to tie a rope onto the ankle of the high priest so that if God struck him dead they could pull him out without anybody going in there because nobody was going to go into that place where the, where the real presence of God was and where there was the glory constantly present. And so they decide to, uh, to well we want, we want sort of the power of God on our side to help us in our battles. You know, lots of people are always trying to get God to help them in what they're intending to do. It reminds me of the Crusades in the Middle Ages when they used to march into battle with the crosses hoping that there was some magic in the cross. It's not in the cross 
as a physical object, it's in what God did on the cross that the power is. And there's a great tendency for, 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 relig for people to go to religion and to uh, symbolism and to, to make, really, what it is, it's an image to replace God. And they thought, well, if we can carry this ark into battle, then the glory of it will somehow give us victory over our enemies. Well, God doesn't play those sort of games. And they, they raised a great shout. You can read it all in 1 Samuel 4. I haven't time to read it all. And the whole of the valley shook with the sound of the shout. And it was the first time that the Philistines had ever heard God's people shouting. And they said, what's that shout? They said, it's the shout of God's people. The, the ark has come into the camp. And, and the effect, you see, upon the enemy was that when they heard God's people shouting, they decided they were going to fight all the harder. The shout terrified them. They realized that if God's people were starting to shout, it meant that there was going to be a much stiffer battle. So they, they prepared themselves even more vigorously for the war. But you see, because God's people were unholy and sinful, they were, they were not able to withstand the power of the enemy. And so they were defeated. You know, if we just shout the shout, say, oh, you know, we'll take the kingdoms for Jesus, and we just get into this charismatic noise, but our lives aren't holy, what we do is we stir up the opposition of the devil, and we actually bring trouble upon our heads. The unholy shout just releases the wrath of the devil, but because we're unholy, we have no power against the devil. So we end up worse than we started. That's exactly what happened here. So they carried the ark into battle and God allowed the ark to be taken. It was, a, it, was a it was a great day, a terrible day because there was the two sons of Eli and they were living immorally and they were sinning and, 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 and stealing from, from the uh, gifts to the altar. I mean, it, they were corrupt financially. They were corrupt in terms of acquisitiveness. They were corrupt in terms of morality. Does it remind you of anything? And yet they were in charge, so they were, just, they were just fleecing the people and living on the fat of the land and living in godless immorality. And they went into battle with the Ark of the Covenant of God, thinking that God was going to bless them. What incredible presumption. And so the Ark is taken. The two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. The messenger comes running back and brings the dreadful news that the Ark of the Covenant is now a, a, an object of captivity by the Philistines. Eli, this old man of 98 years, when he hears the news, he's a weak sort of, you know, spiritual man that, that lives in the, the clouds with his God, but he, he hasn't even got the courage to rebuke his own sons. And when he hears the news, he's so shocked, he falls over backwards and breaks his neck and he dies. And then... Uh, Phineas's wife prematurely gives birth to her son. She dies in childbirth, but just before the child is born, she gives him a name with the name is Ichabod. The glory of the Lord is departed. What a day. And so the ark's taken, and they keep it in the camp of the Philistines, and they put it in the the temple of their god Dagon. And every morning when they wake up, Dagon's flat on his face before the ark of God. 
And so they put it back on his feet again. And he's flat on his face before the ark of God. So they put it back on his feet again. This time they come in, the heads and the hands have all been taken off. And then boils break out. And God begins to afflict the Philistines so terribly. They say, oh, we can't live with this. And so they decide to get rid of the ark. What to do with it? Well, they take the ark and they put it on a new cart with, with milk oxen towing it. And they say, well, let's just see where it goes. And it, and it goes back into the land of God's people and heads towards the fields of the men of Beth Shemesh. Now, we're now in 1 Samuel 6, if you're wondering where we are. I've just given you a run through 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel 5. We're now coming towards the end of 1 Samuel 6. And there are the men of Beth Shemesh. It says that they're out in the fields reaping the harvest. You know what it's a picture to me of? It's a picture of the evangelistic activity of many of the churches that we used to belong to. The glory of the Lord's gone, but we still carry on with our activity. Mind you, we're not very successful, and we're wondering, well, wouldn't it be nice if God came and helped us out with our evangelistic program? And there, across the fields, uh, we read at the end of 1 Samuel 6, they see the ark coming on this ox cart with the cattle lowing, and they're absolutely delighted. Oh, look, God's coming to help our evangelistic program. And they take the ark off the cart. I don't know why they didn't drop dead at that point, but I guess it was just the grace of God. And then they go another stage of presumption. They say, hey, I've always wondered what was in the ark. And so they have the presumption to lift the lid to look inside to see what's in the ark. And as a result, we read 50,072 people drop dead. You know what that's a picture to me of? It's a picture of our theological seminaries around the world. We think that by, because we've now developed, you know, sharp minds, we can, we can take hold of it and say, hey, let's have a look inside, see what make God's tick. It's called theology. We'll study God and, oh, oh, let's focus up on our microscope. What do you think of God, Bars, this mind? Well, I don't know if he's alive, really. He possibly is dead, but it's, it's an interesting, you know, philosophy. And so they look at God and they have, they have, they have several DDs after them, which means doubly dead. Because that's what happens. If you come to examine God presumptuously, you die. God doesn't die. Amen? God doesn't die, but you die because of your presumption. And many people are dead and don't even realize it. And desperately need life. But it's just a picture to me of the incredible presumptions, the lack of understanding of what God is like, who he is, and the, the, this amazing idea that you can treat God like a, an object to be examined. Isn't it insulting to God? But that's the state in which we've got ourselves in much of Christendom. And then they discover something. Let's go to 1 Samuel 6, and you'll just want to look this one verse up. 1 Samuel chapter 6. And verse 20. After he had struck the 50,070 men, verse, it says they lamented. Verse 20, And the men of Bethlehem said, Who is able to stand before this holy God? And to whom shall it go up 
from us. Because now they're faced with a choice. They've discovered something. They are not compatible with a holy God. So there's one of two possibilities. Either they can repent and change to become compatible with a holy God. Or they can decide, well let's get rid of God and continue as we were. And that's what they decide to do. You know, there's lots of people praying for revival and lots of people praying for God to bless them in their activity. I tell you, if God was to show up, half of them would wish that he had never come. Probably more than half. Because God's terrifying if you're not holy. If you're not trusting in the blood, if you're not simply, meekly believing in all that Jesus did for you at Calvary. And not filled with gratitude and amazement that you should be allowed to draw near to such a holy God. He's not here to help you in your church activity. He's not here to help you in your evangelistic activity. He's God! We're not going to change our program. We've got all sorts of things worked out. We've had it all printed and distributed. We can't change anything. So we'll have to get rid of God because God doesn't agree with our program. We're going to carry on anyway, with or without God, because we've printed the brochures, we've told everybody, we've got to keep going with our religious machinery. There's no way we can stop it now. It has to keep on going. And if God can't come with us, well, we'll manage without God. I mean, wanting us to be holy, that's too much. A man that I deeply respect as a, as a mighty teacher of the word, he, he linked up with one of the powerful evangelistic ministries which is well known in this country. In order to give some good, solid theological teaching to go along with the miraculous power that this evangelist undoubtedly had. But when he got inside the system, he re realized it was rigged financially and was as crooked as a corkscrew. And when he confronted the man, the man said, I've been doing this for years, I can't change. I have to continue. My organization would fall apart. I couldn't maintain it at its present level unless I continue to do the things I'm doing. And so my friend, the one whom I did respect, just had to withdraw and leave him. And he was left without this mighty anointed teacher. He couldn't live with even a holy man, never mind a holy God. And so they made the decision. What should we do with this holy God that we can't live with because he requires us to be holy? All we can do is to get rid of him because we have no intention of changing. And so they sent him away. You know, that's what the church has been doing for decades. If not possibly for centuries. There are many people A.W. Tozer once said, who would love to be holy, but they refuse to go through the process of being made holy. And so they sent God away. That's what they did. They put the ark back on the cart and sent it away and carried on harvesting without God. And that's what a lot of evangelistic organizations do in practice because they will not come into line with God's holy ways and God's holy person. And so the ark was carried by the oxen to the house of a man called Abinadab. You read this in the beginning of 1 Samuel 7. It says that God 
blessed the house of Obed of Abinadab. And the name Abinadab, you know what that name means? It means the one who was willing. Isn't that interesting? And God lived quite happily with this man Abinadab and blessed the house of Abinadab and the rest of Israel carried on without God the tabernacle of Moses carried on with its regular Saturday services people came and went the bells were the same the smells were the same the garments were the same the hymns were the same it was just that there was no God nobody really bothered because they didn't really want God they wanted religion not God and the, ben, the men of Bethlehemish carried on reaping in their fields and carrying on as best they could without God because they, it was too much of a price to pay to become compatible with a holy God. But there was one man, Abinadab, who was willing and God blessed his house. And I want to tell you that over the last, I would say, probably all of this century, that's the way that God has been working. Here and there, he's found the Abinadab that he could work with. The odd man who walked with the Holy God, who, who fellowshiped with God, who knew God, who communed with God face to face and brought you know, a, a beautiful personal ministry to the church. But the church at large has lived without the presence of a Holy God. And we've carried on with our organizations and with our programs and our regular services until we are born in a generation that doesn't know what it's like to have the presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant stayed in the house of, of Abinadab, we're told here, for 20 years. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 7. And about this time, King Saul came to the throne. And we're told in 1, Corinthian, in 1 Chronicles 13, and I think it's verse 3, we're told there, David says this, he says, we never sought the ark of God all the days of Saul. Which means then, for a period of 60 years or so, everything carried on as normal with the people of God, except there was no God present. And that's how our churches have been managing for decades. With just an odd Abinadab here, and an odd Abinadab there, but generally the scene has been the glory of the Lord has departed. And we've continued with our programs and our activities to the point where we as a generation in this meeting tonight, none of us have any idea really what it's like to actually live in the presence of God. We've hardly ever been to a church or to a meeting where that's happened. It's just beginning to come back. If I was to take us back 10 years, I'd say none of us would have experienced this. But there are the first little touches now because God is beginning to restore things. But that's the background where many of us come from. And that was the background that David was born in. And as a little lad, he would go off to the synagogue, uh, to the, I'm sorry, to the tabernacle in Shiloh with his parents and he would go through the ceremony. He loved God, but he met more of God on the, on, on the, on the fields with his sheep than he ever did in these religious meetings. He said, I don't feel God here. But when I'm out there under the stars worshipping, that's when I meet God. Why isn't God in this place? You know, there's a whole generation of young people that have been turned off God by the religious deadness of what many of us have got used to. And I've met them in their thousands in India. Thousands of young people from America 
and from Western Europe who've come to India seeking an answer in Eastern mystic religions. They've come in there tens of thousands looking for an answer. Many of them got caught up in drugs in all kinds of foul, occultish, demonic, counterfeit religions. And every one of them that I ever spoke to said to me, I looked for an answer in the church and I found the church to be totally irrelevant. Isn't that an indictment against us? You see, you can keep the religion going quite nicely. But David had a different heart. And as he grew up as a young lad, he, he attended the meetings faithfully, but there was a cry in his heart, Oh, I just wish that I could meet God in this place and not just a wall of religion. And so he hid all those years in the wilderness and finally he comes to the throne. And he comes to Jerusalem. And the first act of David, if you'll come with me now to 1 Chronicles 13. As he comes to Jerusalem and establishes the kingdom. Verse 13. Um, chapter 13, I'm sorry, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the congregation of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord our God, let us send out our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And so he had this great longing to bring back the ark. And then... Perhaps we will just jump to, keep your, keep your finger in 1 Chronicles 13, we probably will come back to it, but I want to, I want to go to 2 Samuel 6, which is the parallel passage of Scripture. They, are, they record the same incidents, but it's a little bit briefer there. I want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, where you find the same facts. And it says, And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Why did they do that? Well, because all they could remember was that was the way the Philistines brought it to the house of Abinadab. You see, 60 years have gone by and they've lost their way. Now they're absolutely sincere. David's got a great heart longing just to see God's presence and glory come back. He doesn't want to live in religion. He wants to live in the reality of God's presence. And I, I remember this so vividly when I became the, the pastor of the Bombay Baptist Church with five people in this church. It, it was ravaged by every kind of assault. There was a court case going on. There wasn't a single evangelical church in the whole of the great city of Bombay which now numbers 12 million people. Everything that had been of God had been swept away. All that was left was, was corrupt, foul, polluted Christian religion. 
And I say, oh God, come back. I want to see your presence. I want to see your glory. I know you're a great God, but where are you? Why aren't you here? But I had no idea at all what to do. All I had was a, a desperate, hungry heart. I was the pastor of the one and only Baptist church with five people. And I just began to preach the hunger of my heart. I preached for 18 months on just how hungry I was for God really to come. And people from all over the city began to come because they were hungry like me. And we all sat there saying, Oh God, oh God, come, oh God, come. We didn't know what we wanted. We didn't know how to get there. But we knew we wanted God. We knew we didn't want to continue in the empty shell of religion. Now that was David's heart. And in his ignorance, he goes and takes a new ox cart and puts the ark on it. Now what amazes me was that he didn't drop dead. Because if you read Numbers chapter 4 through 7, the instructions are so clear as to exactly how the holy objects are to be moved. Only one family is allowed to touch the holy objects, and that's the direct family of Aaron. Only them. They have to take the ark, cover it up with the special coverings. They had to put in the poles on either side. And when they'd finished all that preparation work, then only the Kohathites, one of the three main families of the tribe of Levi, they were then allowed to come and put their shoulders under the poles and lift up the ark, and it was then carried on their feet. In Numbers chapter 7, we read how some of the princes of Israel gave a gift to Moses. They gave to, to Moses, they gave him six ox carts and twelve oxen to pull them. The idea was that the Kohathites had two, and the Gershonites had two, and the Merariites had two. These were the three families which were responsible for moving the tabernacle every time it needed to be moved. But you read in number seven that what Moses did was he gave two of the ox carts to the Kohathites, and f I'm sorry, to the Gershonites, and four of them to the Merariites, and it says there very plainly, he did not give any cart to the Kohathites because they were responsible for the holy objects and the holy objects had to be carried on their shoulders by poles after they had been sanctified. Be careful that you do this lest ye die. But they didn't know this anymore. You see, they got lost in the traditions which had replaced the word of God. You know, it's easy to think, well, how are we going to proclaim Jesus? Well, how do Coca-Cola do it? Who cares how Coca-Cola do it? That's putting the glory of God on an ox cart. That's trying to promote Jesus the way they promote their particular favorite drink or whatever it is. Can you see? And that's the, you, you know, there's a lot of ministries today that are, are getting their promotional literature prepared for them in Fifth Avenue in New York. So they're promoting so-and-so's sort of new computer on one table, and next table they're promoting a ministry. God deliver us from this. But David didn't know any better. Man, they had the enthusiasm. If you just read on here, I mean, they danced. Let's just read a few verses. And, 
And they brought it out of the, verse 4, out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahola went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, made of fir wood, on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums and on cymbals. And they went out to the to Nacon's threshing floor, and Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. You see, God will allow a fair bit of latitude. You know what's a picture of? That's a picture to me of the early days of Charismata. When the Spirit graciously came to all kinds of denominations which were in all kinds of ungodly messes and were not conforming to the word of God, and he blessed them and allowed them a period. I mean, I was involved for a year or two in the Catholic renewal. God's power hit the Catholic Church in Bombay with incredible power. I've never seen such miracles. I've never seen so many things happen. But I tell you, I almost used to have apoplexy when I'd hear us praising God and someone would add a verse saying, well, let's also praise Mary, who's the mother of God. I, oh, God, I can't stand this. I was actually once invited to concelebrate the Mass with 50 Roman Catholic priests and they thought they were doing me an honour but they were lovely people, totally sincere. I tell you, I love those people, but they were trapped in a system that I, I hate with a hatred that I can't describe to you. I love the people, please hear me. I love them, and I love them so much that I, I just cried and cried. They might be saying, well, in the end, 35,000 of them came out and joined independent churches. They got out of the cage. We saw a great move of God. But I tell you, for a while, God allowed the blessing to, to rest upon that which was totally out of order, but it didn't last that long. And if you haven't heard the news, charismatic renewal is over. It was a temporary thing. And God started to shake the ark, because he wasn't happy for this ark to be, for them to try to carry it back on this Philistine method of carrying the glory of God. What an insult. And so he puts out his, his he starts to shake the thing, and then Uzzah presumptuously says, oh, steady on, don't shake the thing. I remember this vividly. There was I in my Baptist church, crying out to God to come, and then to my amazement and shock, one day God came. And I tell you, beloved, it frightened the life out of me. Because I discovered something. Maybe you haven't discovered this yet. God is not a Baptist. And he's not British. And I was prepared for God to come in a respectable British Baptist way, but he refused. He came as God and, and started to shake everything. And everything that I, I knew and held on to for dear was all shaking. And I said, what's happening to my church? God's come, that's what's happening. He's bringing life and destroying the Philistine methods that we've relied on for, for decades. And I stood there and thought, whoa, what's happening? And you know, I was very tempted to put out my hands and steady the thing. Now steady on because some of my best tithers might leave. And as I did, God said, if you do, that's death. I took my hand back. I said, Lord, I didn't like what God was doing. I didn't understand what God was doing. But there was enough fear of God in me to leave it alone. Amen. And God, the moment Uzzah stretched out his hand and touched the ark, 
God struck Azad dead on the spot. And the whole intention, which was such a wonderful intention, to bring back the glory of God and to, and to, and to bring the blessing of God back into these ungodly systems, it ended in utter disaster. And yet everybody was totally sincere about it. You see, it's not enough to be sincere, you've got to be right. According to the word of God. And so David retreats in, and it says, I think it's in verse 8, if I remember rightly, it says, uh, verse 8, And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him until into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And David went away, to lick his wounds and think, what on earth happened? And we know what it happened because if we go back to 1 Samuel, uh, sorry, to 1 Chronicles 15, I won't, we won't turn there, you can read in more detail what happened because David comes out and says, he spends three months probably wondering what went wrong, seeking the face of God, praying, reading the Bible, and then it dawns on him. He says, this is all wrong. We were not seeking it after the proper order. And then he commands the, the Kohathites and the other Levites to sanctify themselves. He said, we've got to carry the ark of God on poles. We can't carry it on a cart. Let's do it the way God's word says. Now I asked God, I said, God, why did you tell them to carry it on poles? I want to know the spiritual meaning. And you know what God said to me? He said, it's none of your business. That's what he said to me. So I always wanted some great revelation. These poles have some deep, you know, allegorical meaning. He said, I just told them poles to see if they would obey me. He said, why do you have to know before you're willing to be obedient? If I say poles, I mean poles. Isn't that enough for you? And I, and I bowed my head and said, Lord, forgive me. If you say poles, it means poles. And if he says apostles, he means apostles. And if he says prophets, he means prophets. And if he, if he says that's the foundation, he means that's the foundation. Have you got it? Poles means poles. <laughs> and you do it his way. If he says you anoint them with oil, you anoint them with oil. What's the meaning? I don't know what the meaning is, but I'll do it his way. See, if we'll get back to a childlike simplicity that if he says it, do it, and if he doesn't say it, don't do it, we'll get right back into the line of the restoration of all God's purposes. And Jesus had to speak to the Pharisees and he said, you nicely set aside the word of God for your traditions. I once had a prominent, not, in, not an American, he was a, an Englishman, a prominent, one of the leading Assemblies of God leaders about five years ago when they were resisting the spirit coming back into the Assemblies of God church. That's the truth. And I've been all over Eastern Europe where the Pentecostal churches are the most resistant there of any church to the Spirit of God. And this Assemblies of God said to me, he said, it's all right for you with your independent church because he said, you are free simply to obey the word of God. He said, we have to think about our traditions. 
That's an AOG church. Leader said that, a prominent leader. He said, we ought to think about our traditions. And I tell you, everything that's, that's in any way denominational, it's polluted with tradition, and it's not free simply to obey the Word of God. It seems almost an incredible ability for man within five years to create a tradition. Instead of remaining childlikely simple concerning the Word of God, it doesn't take long to get traditions. And so David repented, and then once again, in the order of God, they brought back the ark. And so, come down to verse 12, verse halfway through. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Verse 13. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fat, fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. I mean, that is crazy. First of all, David was not of the tribe of Levi. What's he doing wearing a linen ephod, which is the robing of a priest? And here he is, it says, dancing before the Lord with all his might. He's just gone absolutely crazy. And God says, I'm going to restore this. He said it through the prophet Amos, and he repeated it again. Uh, through the Apostle James, and I tell you, we're seeing the full fulfillment of it now. If God says dance, what do you do? Yes. Got it? If God says poles, it means... If He says dance, it means... If He says shout, if He says raise your hands, if He says wave, if He says anything, do it! Amen? And you can find the scripture has all these things, because I'm going to show you in a moment that, that probably almost all the Psalms are written for the New Covenant, not for the Old Covenant. That's why we don't have chapter and chapter and chapter of the New Covenant telling us how to praise God, because God's already written it once. Got it? Yes. Where is it in the New Testament? In the book of Psalms. Oh, I thought the New Testament started after Malachi. That's where you're wrong, my brother. Abraham lived in the covenant. Did he, did he not? Abraham lived in the new covenant? How was he justified? By faith. What did, the, did Melchizedek, the great high priest Jesus, offer to him? What, what was it? Bread and wine? Amen? Can you see it all? And then in a moment we're going to see this tabernacle of David. You're going to see it's utterly and totally new covenant. And here's David wearing a linen ephod and jumping around like a madman presumptuously considering himself to be a priest unto his God when he wasn't of the tribe of Levi just like Jesus incidentally so he was of the order of the new priesthood can you see that? he was of the order of Melchizedek I could, pro I could prove it to you from Hebrews if I had time so right here we have the new priesthood of Melchizedek beginning to get excited about the coming back of the glory and power that's going to drive the devil off the face of the earth. Yeah. Hallelujah. So David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, so David went. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looking through a window, and saw King David leaping 
and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart, she said, just wait till I get him home. <laughs> just wait till I get him home. You're supposed to be a respectable leader of God's people, and you're pirouetting about like a maniac. Don't you know that you've got to keep the dignity of your office? So she finally meets up with him. When David had finished offering the sacrifices, come down to verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. He was, he was really blessed, but she was fuming. She had seen this undignified exhibition. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids and his servants as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. I wasn't thinking about the people, I was thinking about the Lord. And then he says, rather cuttingly, he said, and he's chosen me instead of your father. (laughs) 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 Hallelujah! to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and will become more humble in my own eyes. If you feel embarrassed about dancing before the Lord, all the more reason to do it. Do it until you destroy that that embarrassment which is nothing more than stinking pride. That's all it is. Put yourself to death by saying, all right, you're going to look an idiot in front of all the people. Go and dance and look like a clumsy ox, but do it and do it and do it until you don't care anymore what people think. Do it, do it, do it. Hallelujah. I danced before the congregation in the Bombay Baptist Church for three months and nobody else joined me. I mean, I haven't time tonight to tell you the story of the long, painful death that this respectable British Baptist died. But I tell you, God made sure he was really dead. (laughs) Hallelujah! (laughs) Now, has it happened to you? And then he comes to bless his household, and then he he says, I'll be held in awe more. Look at verse 23. Therefore... Because of her despising of this liberated, praising man and her own fear of the people and her own intention that she was going to remain respectable. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to to her death. She was barren for her life. Do you want to be barren for the rest of your life? Or do you want to be fruitful? You know, when I, that's what God said to me in that verse. He said, he said, if you don't die, you're going to be barren for the rest of your life. He said, but if you will die, I will make you more fruitful than you could possibly imagine. And I tell you, I gritted my teeth and died. And I trampled all over that respectable British Baptist and said, come on, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so they brought the glory back and the ark was carried 
But please note this, they did not bring it back to the tabernacle of Moses, although the tabernacle of Moses was standing. Let me just say this for a few moments. The tabernacle of Moses had stood for many years at the place called Shiloh, which means peace, about 35 miles from Jerusalem. And, and you could, if you wanted to go there, you could have a kind of religious peace. Oh, isn't it peaceful here? With all these stained glass windows and these lovely bells and smells, and it's nice to sort of come here for an hour and just drink in this peaceful atmosphere. There's a certain peace. And at a point when we don't know quite when, the tabernacle of David was moved from Shiloh after they, of course, took the ark from it. It was moved at some point. All we know is that in the time of David, it was now on the top of Mount Gibeon, which is about five miles from Jerusalem. You've got these two mountains. You've got Mount Gibeon and you've got Mount Zion, just about five, seven miles apart. And on Mount Gibeon was Moses' tabernacle, and on Mount Zion, David built his new tabernacle called the Tabernacle of David. And when they brought the ark back, they never took it back to the Tabernacle of Moses. They brought it straight back to the new Tabernacle of David because God was beginning to do something totally new. And that Tabernacle of, da of Moses remained on Mount Gibeah and the Tabernacle of David remained on Mount Zion for about 35 40 years until Solomon built the temple. We don't know what happened to the tabernacle of David. We know that he replaced David's tabernacle with the great temple of Solomon. So for one generation, the two tabernacles stood side by side. You know what that speaks to me of? Well, what it speaks to me of is this, that, that when we began to move in the new abandoned praise and worship, which, of course, is a characteristic of David's tabernacle, they said, hey, they're singing some, look at how the numbers are increasing. There's more people going to David's tabernacle than are coming to our tabernacle. So let's move it a bit closer so it's easier for people to come. And listen, some of those choruses they're singing, they're really good. Why don't we get a few guitars? And we'll sing a few choruses and we'll sort of come a bit nearer to the tabernacle, tabernacle of David, but we've no intention of going in to join those nutcases. And so what you find is that denominationalism will take little bits of the tabernacle of David and they will absorb it into their tabernacle but they have no intention of ever becoming the tabernacle of David. They just draw a bit nearer but they always keep a respect to what it is so you wouldn't possibly confuse us with them because we're still respectable and we have our tradition and we have all that, that, that history which we have no intention of abandoning simply to have the presence of God that's too big a price to pay. And so you find these two tabernacles side by side for a period of about 30 to 40 years. Now let me just quickly describe for you David's tabernacle. It was totally illegal concerning the law. It was a simple tent with no divisions. There was no holy place and there was no holiest of all. And inside there was nothing but a simple tent. There was no great tapestries. There was no, you know, beautiful colors, there was no bells and smells and all that stuff, it was just a simple tent and in the middle of the tent the Ark of the Covenant sat in all its Shekinah glory and if, as you pull back the flap of the tent, you walk straight into the presence and according to the law, you should have dropped dead Amen? 
You see, what we see here is as if God, for 30 years, he opened a prophetic window and showed us the way he really wants us to have church. The way he really wants us to worship him. And that is without all the ceremony and the trappings and the fancy bits and pieces and certainly no walls. We don't don't want a priesthood. We don't want walls and divisions. All we want is the presence and the glory of God. And if you want God, you just pull back the flap and walk in. You see, all you need is to pass through the veil of his flesh. If you like, the tabernacle of David was just one holy of holies. That's all it was. And you could walk in any time by faith and you could glory in the presence of God as a new covenant believer before the new covenant had come in time now that's what David saw why did God show David the cross as he did in Psalm 22 why did David have so much revelation of the new covenant because God wanted him to be a prophetic forerunner of the new covenant do you understand this and and it's like you've got opened a prophetic window and for 30 40 years he said look Look into this and see what I really want in terms of worship and, and, and meetings and, and, and gathering in my presence. Now, in the tabernacle of David, there were no curtains, there were no divisions, there was no priesthood. In the tabernacle of David, there were no sin offerings. Is that interesting? There were burnt offerings and there were peace offerings, which have got a a symbolism of, of, of a sacrificing of ourselves to God. But there was no sacrifice for sin in David's tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? So the whole thing was illegal regarding the law. It was a place of great praise and worship, and indeed, almost all the Psalms were written in those 30-year period in the tabernacle of David. They were written either by David or by his great musician Asaph. Right? Very few were not written by these two. Probably about 80% of the Psalms. And so when you look into these Psalms, what you find is you find New Covenant theology. Because it was written in a New Covenant context. And when Psalm 149 says, you know, shout and jump and Psalm 150, and all these Psalms, they're Psalms written for those who are God's David Tabernacle people, or if you like, they're God's New Covenant people. So all they have is a simple, uncomplicated relationship with the living God without any walls, barriers, ceremonies, special people or special clothes or anything. It's just if you want God, you can have him. And if you don't want God, there's no point in going because that's all there is to be had there. Got it? Now can you see what James began to see in his spirit? It was a place of great glory. The Psalms were written there and it was the source and it was the power of the kingdom. Once David's tabernacle was established on Zion, that became the power which sent a a great rule spreading across the nation. God says in his word so many times that from Zion he will send forth a strong scepter. And once that tabernacle was established, and once they began to praise and worship him there, and once the leaders of David went up with him into the tabernacle of David, and David and his glory boys just got excited about God and and laid before him in absolute adoration and worship and wonder, (coughs) God began to pour into their hearts the strategy for the city and the strategy for the kingdom. And that's exactly how the apostles behaved in the beginning of the church age. 
they began to live in the tabernacle of David. Not physically, but spiritually. And these, these first apostles and prophets, they would go into the glory and they would worship and praise God in the, in the linen of their new righteousness in Christ and they were laid before him and, and they, were, they were uninhibited and free and they were worshipping and praising and there God gave them the revelation for the rule and government of the kingdom. It was uh, exactly the same. And I could talk for hours about this. I'm just giving you a quick picture. Can you see what I'm talking about? Now, once that was established, and once the power, you see, the power of the kingdom was that little tent on Zion's hill. That was the power of the kingdom. And it flowed out across the nation. And soon it was touching all the nations. And David began to establish fortified cities. And he brought in the rule of God. And once David had established that, that centre of praise and worship, before long the Philistines never attacked him again. And all the days of his ministry, it says God gave him peace. And his enemies were too scared to touch him. It was a time of unprecedented glory, a time of unprecedented prosperity, it was a time of unprecedented righteousness and security and safety and rule and it was a time of order and of government which brought peace and harmony across the whole of God's people. Let me just turn you to Isaiah chapter 16. Isaiah chapter 16. Here's God promising his people a breaking of the yoke of the bondage of all their enemies and a great liberation to his people. Come to verse 4. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, from the extortioner, for the extortioner is at an end. So he's going to finish with the spoiler. He's going to finish with the, with the extortioner. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Do you want to live in an America like that? Well, let's raise up David's tabernacle. It has a, a powerful governmental effect. It has a power to destroy darkness and other rulerships and break bondages and liberate people in a, in a way that I could talk for hours about tonight. It's all over the scripture once you see it. So raising up the tabernacle of David isn't simply another form of more liberated worship. There's a power and there's a dynamic in it which changes the very rule in the heavenlies. And if you and I will do what God says, whether we understand it or not, and as a result cause the tabernacle of David to be raised up, cause its breaches to be repaired, cause its walls to be mended, cause tabernacles David to come here in all its glory, in all its fullness, I tell you, the power that will be let loose will mean that no demon in this area dares to lift up its head again. Bondage will cease. And extortioners will not dare come into this land. Come on into the next verse, verse 5. Look, in mercy... To, in order to achieve all these things in verse 4, in mercy, the throne will be established. And one will sit on an in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. You see, once that tabernacle was established, it be, God immediately came and sat on the throne and said, Now I can begin to rule. 
And these people who gather in my presence as priests of the new covenant, this Melchizedek company that have gathered around me, I tell you, these people are going to rule with a terror and with a power across the land that's going to destroy all the works of darkness. Have you ever read Psalm 110? Let's just read it, because this is the Melchizedek priesthood that gathered round the feet of that mighty throne as God sat upon the throne in the tabernacle of David. And these Melchizedek priests came and worshipped God in all the uncluttered simplicity of the new covenant and violated every rule of the law and God was mighty pleased to see them. Hallelujah. Come to Psalm 110. Let's just read it. Give ourselves a treat. I wasn't going to read it, but I'm going to. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Look at it, till I make your enemies your footstool. Look, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Where? And where was David's tabernacle? Zion, out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall volunteer in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Not physical kings, but demonic kings, beloved. That's what he's going to do. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. Hallelujah. If, I, if, I, if ever there was a warring psalm, that's one. Amen? Oh, hallelujah. Now, as, as James meditated, he realized that God was doing it again. And as all these Gentiles came flooding in, wearing their linen ephods of the righteousness of Christ and just were dancing before the Lord without any religiousness whatsoever. They never knew what it was to be religious, thank God. And they just believed in Jesus and just received the Holy Spirit and moved in the power of God. And then the Judaizers tried to get to work and say, this isn't enough, we've got to add to their simplicity in Christ all the complications and bondage of the law. And God said, oh no you don't. Oh no you don't. And so in the day of David they had to make a choice. If they wanted to, they could go and continue to go to Mount Gibeon, where the tabernacle of Moses was, and God even graciously gave them a priest to oversee the God-empty activity in Mount Gibeon. His name was Zadok. The name Zadok means justify. It's a picture to me of evangelicalism without the presence of God. And, they, and, and Michael, I'm sure, she went there every Saturday. She went to her, I've always been to this church for the last 30, 30 years, and I'm not changing. Even if it is dead, even if the organ does squeak and grunt, at least you know it's finished by 12, so the dinner doesn't get spoiled. And so Michael and all the other traditions, they all went firmly to Mount Gibeon and sat there while they all went, ah, 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 yeah, and the others all went glorying, dancing and shouting and hallelujahing up to the tabernacle of David. 
But God, God knew that some of them couldn't make it. So he graciously made provision for them. But I tell you, it was the tabernacle of David that released the power. It was the tabernacle of David that established the throne. It was the tabernacle of David from which the strong scepter went down. It was the tabernacle of David which had the power and the authority to penetrate the heavens and pull down principalities. It was the tabernacle of David where the Melchizedek priesthood met. It was the tabernacle of David that established the kingdom. And these others lived in the benefit of it without being part of it and such is the graciousness of God so I'm not I'm not knocking these things I know that for some people it's asking too much to make the change and God knows that but I know where I want to belong and I know which tabernacle I'm going to worship because I want to be where God is Amen so James meditated and he began to realize that God was doing it again. He was raising up the tabernacle of David. He was restoring real heart worship instead of religious outward activity. He was restoring anointed leaders instead of ecclesiastical dignitaries. He was restoring spiritual authority instead of simply the status of office. He was restoring relationships instead of organization. He was replacing power for words. And glory instead of ceremony. God was doing it. He was repairing its walls, rebuilding its ruins. And the glory wasn't coming back to Judaism. It didn't in David's day. The glory never came back to the tabernacle of Moses. And it didn't in James' day. And in those early years of the church, there was some confusion. It says in Acts 20, 21, it says there were many priests who believed and they were also zealous for the law. And that was a phase which hung on for a, possibly a generation. And then God made the clean, clear cut. And of course, what he did was to destroy the temple. For about 35 years, about the same period of time, the temple remained. And then God destroyed it and made a clear, clean cut between the old ways of Judaism and the new ways of Christ. And it was no longer permitted to try and marry the two of them. How long's charismata been going around? Possibly something like about the same amount of time. Maybe not quite as long. But God's already raised up the tabernacle of David. And already we're being invited to make the choice. And so in the days of James, he saw it. He said, oh Lord, I can see what you're doing. You're producing a new simple people and the Gentiles have seen it before we did. Because of our traditions, we didn't see how simple you want us to become. What should be happening is that we should go and be like them, not them come and be like us. And I tell you, God's pulling into, and I don't know whether it's happening to you, but my wife's telling me every Sunday now we're seeing about 10 or 15 people saved in our church in England. Not a big church, it's only a, about 600 people, but we're seeing about 10 or 15 people and every one of them's coming out of a totally unchurched background. They wear their hair all over the place and, and you know, they, they, everything that isn't at all religious. Some of them have to get married the day before they get baptized because they've been living together for years. It's, it's a mess, but I tell you, the... the I mean, I, it's very embarrassing if you're a respectable churchman, but I tell you, <laughs> I tell you, we love them. 
and, and we're, we're making room for them. And I tell you, I believe it's better for us to become like them than them to become like us, where we, we have to wear all our religious respectability. And I tell you, God's going to bring in hordes and hordes and hordes of people who have no idea what it's like to be a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Pentecostal or whatever ever it is that you grew up in. And I tell you, God doesn't intend to tell them how to become one. He's just going to teach them how to love Jesus and how to live in total abandonment with complete uninhibited praise and total commitment to live simple, uncomplicated, totally committed, holy lives for God. Now that's the tabernacle of David. And I tell you, there's a power going to go out from it that's going to shake principalities and powers and establish strong fortified cities spiritually that are going to exercise a rule that's going to destroy demonic powers and demonic darkness with the result that multitudes are going to come flocking into the kingdom of God. But we're living in that generation that has to make a choice. If you want to, you can go to Mount Gibeon and live your Christian life in the tabernacle of Moses. Keep your traditions. Keep that sort of religious peace. But you'll never see the power there. You'll never see the glory there. Or you can make the choice to die to it all. Dance your way out of your embarrassment. Shout your way out of your fear. Make yourself utterly ridiculous and become totally foolish for Christ. And join David and his glory, boys, where the power is and where the glory is. And you can live in the presence of God. You can be part of that company that goes to spiritual Zion and comes into this wonderful tent of David and lives there in the unclouded presence of God and just worships him. And there the Shekinah glory will just cover you all over. I tell you, there's a whole generation beginning to live like this. And I am utterly committed to being part of it. And I'm inviting you to do the same. Let's stand, shall we? Let's stand. I'd like the musicians to come, please. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you tonight, if you haven't already done so, to make a choice. If you want to stay in Moses' tabernacle, well, God will keep it open and going for maybe a few more decades. And God bless you and I, I, I pray peace upon you. <laughs> if you want to be where the power is and where the action is, you're going to have to come out of your traditions, out of your embarrassment, and just with complete <coughs> abandonment to God, Come with these spiritual Davids and the glory boys and receive the spirit and power of that tabernacle. I'll tell you what I believe we're going to do. I'm going to ask all of you that want to be part of that David tabernacle company, want to be part of that priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and you want to be part of 
the power and glory of Mount Zion, part of the strong scepter that's reaching out already across the nations. And you're prepared to do anything, pay any price, carry poles, stand on your head, do whatever God says, providing he says it. Just so that you might be totally free in the new move of God. And I want you just to come and stand out the front here. If you're already part of it, you're free to come. If you want time to think about it, well, we understand. You take time to think about it. And I tell you what I'm going to pray. I tell you what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God's Spirit will come down tonight and that the, if you like, we'll begin to touch the glory of that tabernacle. I don't know what's going to happen and, and I can't make it happen, alright? I just know that God wants to come and touch us and bless us. I do know that we should respond by just becoming free. Maybe you're going to dance for the first time in your life tonight. Maybe you're going to speak in tongues for the first time. The Spirit of God may come upon some of you and baptize you for the first time in the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God's here and He's going to release something tonight. Because He is crying in His heart for this tabernacle. Amen? So we don't want to sing sort of... We want to really let go tonight, okay? Amen? We want to be... David. Is, let me just pray for you right now. Just open up your hearts. If you can speak in tongues, you speak in tongues. And I say, oh Lord, let the glory of your tabernacle come upon these people right now in the name of Jesus. I just loose the anointing of the Holy Spirit across these precious people. And I liberate you from every bondage in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I just loose the Holy Spirit upon you precious people. And I liberate you from any and every bondage that you've ever been, every fear, every shyness. I loose the Spirit upon you right now in Jesus' name. I loose the Spirit of my God upon you in Jesus' name. Now just drink and receive the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of David's tabernacle fall freshly upon my brother, upon this dear sister. Lord, I just loose your spirit in Jesus' name upon these precious ones right now. Just loose your Holy Spirit. Run up and down these roads, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Let your power come. Let your glory come and touch these precious ones. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, I break every bondage in the name of Jesus. I break every spirit of fear in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to glorify God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Right. Hallelujah. Right. Find a place and dance. Find a place and dance. Come on, let's go.